I would ask that you please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. As most of you know, uh, last week we finished our time in Isaiah until next June. So what we're going to be doing is transitioning for the next couple of weeks before we get into the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to spend a good long while uh, going through an exegesis of 1 Timothy, but before we get there, we have a couple of other things in mind. For example, today we have something very special. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, All the things that you have heard from me and among many witnesses, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. One of the most important things that every Christian can do is disciple other Christians. Paul tells Timothy that one of the ways that pastors are supposed to do this is to identify faithful men and to train them up in their ability to teach and to preach. It is my duty to disciple people who will disciple people and to teach people who will then teach other people. So it's my fervent desire that this church, Gateway Church, will regularly be training and raising up men so that we do not just have one person that can preach the gospel in this church. That is not a healthy situation. We need to have as many people as possible who are able and capable to handle the word of God rightly, faithfully, and accurately. So we are working on doing that right here at Gateway. And this morning, we're going to hear from five other faithful men that have been working to be trained in the word of God. And there were going to be six, but due to an illness, I'm actually going to be joining those five today. And we're going to be walking through Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now, some of these men have preached before. Uh, maybe you'll recognize Jonathan Rodriguez, uh, Jonathan Rodriguez and his preaching, or Gene Empert and his preaching. Uh, they've been in the pulpit several times in the past, both on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. But there are others preaching today for the very first time, such as Francesco Loverde and Henry Drew and Marco Rosero. And I am incredibly excited because all of these men have been working together with me over the month of August to grow in our preaching abilities. Uh, now there's a time where we are going to get together and what we're going to do will look different, but in all actuality, it's exactly the same. We are here to hear the word of God. And I am excited for those of you who have not experienced this kind of a round robin preaching to enjoy this this morning. It's something that I believe to be very special. So I think it's only fitting that I ask you to encourage these men. Encourage them by your voices, by your words. Afterwards, speak to them, uh, lift them up, Share with them what really stood out to you. Encourage them that they might grow in their preaching. And uh, give them soft and helpful and beautiful and loving critique. And I would also ask that we encourage them by listening carefully to the word of God this morning. This is the text that we are going to be hearing. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that was set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. God, we ask that today as we stand here and preach the word, that you would help each of the men who stand in this pulpit to declare rightly, accurately, faithfully, truthfully, and convincingly the word of God, so that we might be, as a church, that we might grow, that we might be conformed into the image of Christ. And Lord, I pray for everyone here to hear the word, that we might be edified, that we might be encouraged, that we might be convicted, and that we might be trained in righteousness so that we can carry out all of the calling that you have for us. 
God, we pray that you would help us to endure. Help us, carry us forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And we begin with Henry Drew. Good morning, church. All right. It is an honor for me to be able to help and share and proclaim the word of God to you this morning. This passage that we are looking at today is one that is great and beautiful, one that is full of hope and assurance, um, and I have been asked to open it up for us. As chapter 12 starts with this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such, so great a cloud of witnesses, First, if anyone knows their hermeneutics, that just means Bible interpretation, their eyes should be caught by the first word in this verse, therefore. Whenever we see a therefore, we must ask what the therefore is there for. Uh, the word therefore is a conjunctive. Uh, its job is to give foundation to another thought. For example, it is raining, therefore bring an umbrella. You bring the umbrella due to the reasoning laid beforehand, namely that it is raining. So the foundation for the rest of the two verses of our study are found here. The why of the passage is found here. The why we should listen and do this. Uh, why can we lay aside every weight and every sin? How can we run the race and look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith? What uh, enables us? Uh, what is the engine that will get the wheels to turn on this passage? And the answer to that is the great cloud of witnesses. That is everyone just cited by the author to the Hebrews in chapter 11. This is also commonly known as the Hall of Faith. Here in chapter 11, we have a list of great deeds of faith from the Old Testament saints. Those who are named in this passage include Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses and his parents, Rahab the prostitute, the judges of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, King David, and also the prophet Samuel. Of these deeds, you see the faith of Abraham, who was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, believing that God, if he did so, would raise him from the dead. We are also told of one saint not mentioned by name, but most likely the prophet Isaiah, that he was sawn in two for his faith. These saints are described in this chapter as strangers and exiles on the earth. They were seeking a homeland and not looking back. Chapter 11 states they desired a better country, a heavenly one, and they were pushing forward to their true home. They knew that this world is currently passing away, and they despise the things of this world. Great acts of faith uh, that bring awe and glory to God are here in chapter 11. But what is more uh, amazing is the context in which they acted uh, this faith in. The last two verses of chapter 11 tell us the context, stating this, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, these saints suffered and sacrificed much and did so in faith, but they did all of this without seeing God's promises ultimately fulfilled. They died not receiving the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent. 
without the prophet greater than Moses, without the son of David whose reign would never end. They did not receive the Messiah. The only thing that they had was God's word, the Lord's assurance that this would happen. So, what is our fuel to do what is commanded this morning? It is this. If the saints in the Old Testament did all that they did by faith, how much more are we Christians to live by faith? We have received the promise. God has provided something better for us. We have been raised to life with Christ. We have God's completed word, and we have his Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We know more than Moses did. Do you know that? And he communed with God on a mountaintop. But get this, he can only look at the Lord's back. But we, saints of the new covenant, can approach God our Father with unveiled face. We have seen Jesus in all of his glory, namely him hanging on a cross of Calvary to set his people free from their sins. Now, saints, listen. For many of us, it is not a lack of knowledge that slows our Christian walk. If you know your Bibles, you do not lack knowledge. It is more often than not a lack of faith that in what we know. For if the great cloud of witnesses did all they did with veiled promises filled with shadows, how much more should we Christians act in great faith? We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. We know what has already been done for us through Jesus. The Lord has given us everything that we could ever need in this life through Christ. The question is, do you believe that? Do you have faith? If you don't, if you lack faith, know that God is faithful to his word. Be encouraged, church, by the faithfulness of our God that we might be like the great cloud of witnesses and commended by God for our faith. Church, it is a privilege to be able to address you all this morning and uh, to stand uh, with locked arms with my brethren and uh, bring the word to you. Um, I am to uh, continue where Henry left off, and my verse is, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. We will look at three parts of this verse, first the weight which the author speaks of, next to the sin, and finally, the laying aside of these both. First, let us consider the weight, which the author speaks of, or as it is stated in the New American Standard, the encumbrance. To begin, I would like to note that to properly understand this weight, we must first recognize that there exists a distinction between the weight and the sin referenced in this verse. Though the weight and the sin referenced are not exclusive from one another, there most certainly is an intended distinction by the author. Though, while the weight must be laid aside as much as the sin, that which is weight is not that which is necessarily sinful. Uh, the word used for weight in this verse literally refers to a bulk or a mass. 
As Christians, we are called to walk a path, and not only that, but run a race, and not only that, but wage a war. We carry weights, however, these things that, though not sinful, perhaps, hinder us from running the race set before us. Those things which deaden our souls and impede the work of sanctification. 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. We must not only ask ourselves, is it sin, but is it beneficial? Does it help me run? Does it help me fight? What are those things which hinder you, beloved? What are those things which keep you from conforming into the image of your Savior? Is it the overindulgence of innocent pleasures? Is it those things which distract you? Is it those things which keep you too busy to fellowship with the body of Christ? That which keeps you from spending time in the scriptures and that which takes the place of purposeful time in prayer? Beloved, be sure of this. That which you spend your time and energy on will either feed your spiritual walk or starve it. An Olympian runs a race to win that which is perishable and does not dare carry baggage. Shall we then who run a race for that which is imperishable and dare encumber ourselves with the baggage of this world? I join the author of Hebrews in pleading that you strip yourselves of all that encumbers you. Examine your lives as a fig tree, constantly pruning away every branch that does not produce spiritual fruit. And now let us move on to our second point. Not only does the writer of Hebrews exhort them to lay aside every weight, but to also lay aside every sin. First, I would like to point out the pronoun which the author uses in this verse. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. I like, once again, how it's stated in the New American Standard, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. The writer includes himself in this exhortation by using the pronoun us. There has been some debate over the years as to whether the Jews which the writer is addressing are true Christians or merely those who have been exposed to the gospel and enlightened by it but not truly saved. Now, although there is debate on the salvation status of the audience, there is no debate as to the status of the author and no debate as to the character of the author. The author of Hebrews is clearly a Christian and a mature Christian at that, perhaps even an elder. And so with this statement, he clearly demonstrates that sin is a present reality in his life, not just that it was, but that it is. For he's using the present tense. This one verse in itself dismantles the false notion that salvation equals sinless perfection. As stated in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin is a present struggle for all believers. Paul echoes this very truth in Romans chapter 7, does he not? For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And that's the enigma of the Christian life. The enigma is that we strive for perfection knowing we can never attain it until we reach glorification. Although sin is a reality in our lives, however, we must learn to never make peace with it. For sin is what keeps us from seeing God clearly and truthfully. Sin is a fetter which hinders our sanctification. And worst of all, sin is what crucified our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. What sins do you harbor? What sins have you made peace with? 
If you are in Christ, you know just how close sin still clings, and there is only one remedy, to cling closer to Christ. We must heed the writer's counsel and lay aside the sin which clings so closely. And this leads us to our third and final point. How are we to lay aside this weight? And how are we to lay aside these sins? Uh, there are three ways I would like to consider. First, through prayer. We must recognize our frailty and proneness to wander. That is the first step. When we pray, we make petition to God saying that we are not able to overcome this sin apart from his strength because our strength is useless. When we do this, God receives the glory and not us when that sin is overcome. Second, we lay aside every weight and sin through the scriptures. The scriptures reveal to us the will of God. God has made known to us through his inspired word how he wants us to overcome sin. Throughout the book of Hebrews, uh, the author simply quotes scripture to remind the people of what is written and to point them to Christ. Jesus says in Luke 24, 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, all of the Old Testament must be fulfilled. All of the scripture points to Christ and it guides us from going astray. That is how the author wants to free his Jewish audience from their specific weight by pointing them to Christ throughout the scriptures. And not only that, but the scriptures are our defense against the enemy's attacks. Think of the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. It is written, was his cry. It is written against the attacks of Satan. It is written, he pointed the enemy to scripture, and that was his defense. Beloved, if you are not in the scriptures, you are ill-prepared for the temptations of this world. And lastly, through the church. Christians are not islands. The Lord has instituted the church body and we are to be members of that body. Each one of us are to be instruments of sanctification and edification in one another's lives to bless one another. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron. And in the same way, one believer sharpens another. And so let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Um, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Apostle Paul is talking about a race, right? This is the race that every believer is engaged. This is not a 100-meter dash. It is a race that lasts a whole life. It is like a marathon. An athlete, in order to participate in a marathon, must be prepared. He must leave behind anything that prevents him from running. He must have a proper diet, as well as a regular training periods, and of course, rest. In time, this will create endurance on the runner for the race ahead. Now, the word endurance comes from the Greek hippomone, that means remaining under, endurance, steadfastness, especially as God enables the believer to remain or endure under the challenges he allots in life. In the same way, in the Christian life, we should leave behind habits and customs that do not please God. We should read and meditate on his word regularly, 
This includes prayer and communion with our Lord and Savior, just like our brother said before. The way that we run, it's also important. We must run with patience and endurance, just like a marathoner. In this case, we must run knowing that at some point, we will have difficulties and discouragements, that our faith is going to be tested. We are going to falter, and perhaps we think that we can no longer continue, that the race is very difficult and long. We are going to get tired, brothers and sisters. Our energy will be lacking, especially when we have in front of us the heartbreaker hill. Have you been in a marathon, any of you? Have you been in any race? Ah, there you go. Have you felt like you want to give up? Sometimes, right? That happens. It will happen. We could even be unmotivated by some who will stop persevering and will abandon the race. But at, same, at the same time, we will also have others who will motivate us, those brothers and sisters who run alongside us, who, who when we faint, they encourage us. But there is someone of vital importance, our Paracletus, from John 14, 26. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us and who teaches, comforts, exhorts, and encourages to continue. We must trust that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. We must trust that we have a great high priest who is interceding for us. He is the only one and he is the only reason for us to finish this race the marathon of faith. James advises, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The apostle Paul exhorted us to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Do not be as lawful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are imperishable. This is our reward, brothers and sisters, an incorruptible crown. That is our motivation. Every athlete runs because he knows that in the end a reward awaits him a prize. We must also run in such a way that we receive that award, which, by the way, is not because of our merits, of our works, but by those of Christ, as Ephesians 2.9 tells us, not by works, so that no one can boast. Where are we heading? What does the finish line look like for us? We are heading to that place where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's why we have to set our eyes on Jesus, because he predestined us, he chose us, he redeemed us, he justified us, he reconciled us, he called us, he regenerated us, he indwelled us, he sanctified us, he preserved us, he glorified us, and he empowered us to continue in this race. Paul also said, I press on toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Our goal 
is to get where our beloved Lord Jesus is. Just like all the heroes of faith of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The Apostle Paul, on, John, on his letter on 1 John 2.25, the Apostle John in his letter says that he, that he promised us eternal life. Our Lord and Savior expressed his desire for us. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, do not forget that our Lord has said, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. The Apostle Paul, already near the end of his life, in his letter to Timothy, spoke of his race of faith and the reward he will receive. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, brothers and sisters, let's pray that we can say the same thing. We have finished the race. We have kept the faith. And the greatest reward for us will be to see our Lord face to face. Good morning. The portion of this verse I will be touching on today is Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And in order to unpack these, uh, this verse, I have two points for you today. Point number one, the founder of our faith. And point number two, the perfecter of our faith. Let's start with point number one, the founder of our faith. In order to determine what it means to be the founder of our faith, we need to look at the two different words that are used in the different versions of the Bible. One word is founder, which is what we currently have in the ESV. And the other word is author, which is used in other versions of the Bible. And both of these words come from the Greek word archegos. So let's look first at the word founder. So in order to properly hone in on this word, let us, let us look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, which says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering. The writer of Hebrews has in the back of his mind Christ, the founder of our faith. But why? Why does the author of Hebrews refer to Jesus as the founder of our faith, of our salvation? Because being a founder means one who has paved the way. It means that something now is attainable. It is made available that would not have been before because of the work the founder has done. And because the work of the founder, there is a basis for that which comes forth. Jesus has set in stone the only narrow way to the Father, meaning that the only way through him we can have true life. And according to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, the narrow way is not an easy one, but Jesus himself is gentle and lowly, and we can confide in him. Jesus has set in stone the only way, the only narrow way 
to escape the wrath of God. How so? By taking on the full wrath of God on himself, suffering the most gruesome death in all of all history to be the founder of our faith. That foundation laid was made perfect through the suffering servant. It is an unshakable foundation, one that cannot be redacted, one that cannot be destroyed, and one that will last forever. That foundation was made by Christ so that we can have faith in him and be saved, making him the founder. He is the one who has awakened us to the Christian faith. The second word we have here is author. These two words give a, give a profound meaning to what the writer of Hebrews is portraying in this verse. As the author, Jesus is the one who gives life and meaning to that which he creates. The history of redemption was written by the author of our faith. From eternity past, it was determined and written that this God, Jesus, would humble himself and enter into time and space to rescue that which was lost. This story was written by the same one who came to accomplish that which needed to happen, to die a brutal, a brutal, a brutal death to recover those he determined to save from eternity past. Brothers and sisters, this, this storyline is indeed perfect because the one who wrote it is perfect and sovereign. God did not write the history of redemption with, an, with a pencil and an eraser. He wrote it with permanent ink because he makes no mistakes. And that is truly humbling. Chapter 2, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8 and says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Why should we have that honor? That such undeserving people as us will be captivated by the one who has paved the way for us. The God who created the universe mindful of such insignificant beings. That just shows and portrays the eternal love and mercy of God to those he determined to save. We who have been saved have received mercy and are now being perfected by our founder, which leads us to our second point, the perfecter of our faith. So we can ask the question, what does it mean to be the perfecter? It means that Jesus is maturing. He is refining. He is sculpting. He is chiseling away at us and making us into that perfect image of himself. Because when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The Apostle Paul phrases this perfectly in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because he has written the history of redemption, he has all of our days written out. From eternity past to future glory, every person who he has determined to save, he will indeed save. And when they are new creatures, will then start the process of perfection in them. He will perfect that also precious faith that was given to us to a faith that is robust, to a faith that is firm, to a faith that is steadfast. The work of the gospel is effectual in our lives. It is doing something in us that we would not be able to do on our own. This narrow way will be one of much suffering. 
the perfecter will perfect us through suffering. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that they went through so much suffering that they felt like they received a death sentence. But then he says it was so that they didn't rely on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul and his fellow laborers were indeed being perfected. Brother and sisters, the effectual work of the gospel is bringing us through different seasons in life that is perfecting the faith that was born in our hearts. And that is done through the perfecter of our faith. We are not left alone after being born again, but yet we follow after the one who has already paved the way, Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Amen. There are many commands in the New Testament that are not only difficult, they are impossible. Consider just one. We are commanded, be holy as I am holy. Impossible. Apart from Christ, that is. They are impossible. In this passage, we find one of those commands that without Christ is certainly impossible. He says to us, endure. But what is it that we are called to endure? Well, the exact statement given to us in this verse was quite simply, the race that is set before you. You have a race, and I have a race, and although they have similarities that were mentioned earlier by Marco, they are distinct. One of the similarities is brought out by Jesus Christ in his words in Luke chapter 23. He describes the race of every single disciple this way. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What does it look like to run this race? It looks like dying. Enduring a daily crucifixion is not only difficult, it is impossible apart from Christ. But the truly amazing thing is this. Jesus never demands that you do anything that he himself did not do. And beyond that, Jesus does not demand that you do anything that he himself does not carry you through. And we see both of these truths in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. As we've just heard, the only way that we can endure is looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes on him and running in his direction. But what specifically is it about Jesus that we are to cling to that makes us able to run this race with endurance? We are called to take note of exactly how he faced Calvary's cross so that we might know how to shoulder our own. Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Now, it is certainly clear that Jesus did not desire the suffering. He did not desire the pain. He did not desire the shame that accompanies the cross. It's for that reason that he prayed in the garden that the cup might pass from him. But he did desire to honor the Father. And he did go to that cross because there was joy on the other side of the cross that caused him to endure. And what joy was it that he was looking to? This is a kind of tricky thing to answer because I don't think this is a fill-in-the-blank with a one-word kind of answer. 
I think there are many things that are being referenced here when it references the joy set before him. For example, we see in many occasions in the scripture, it gave him joy to do the will of the Father. I think it was the joy of honoring and pleasing God by going to the cross. And we learn that Jesus receives joy when he purchases a people for himself at the cross, that we might be the first fruits of salvation. And we see that there was joy on the part of Jesus Christ that he would be glorified and have that glory once again with the Father in heaven. We read about that in the prayer of John 17. And we know that it produced joy in Jesus that his name would be given to him that is above every name and that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue confess on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we could go on and on and on. What gave him joy? So many things. But all of them required going through the cross. But what you and I need to see is that it was joy that propelled Jesus' suffering. It was his delight in the fixed promises of what lay on the other side of the cross. He had joy even in that moment, and that allowed him to endure. And the text goes so far to say that the result was that he despised the shame of the cross. Now, in the Bible, the word despise does not mean the same thing we often say when we are using the word despise in contemporary English. That word literally, when used in the Bible, means he thought nothing of it. It became absolutely irrelevant. It was insignificant. It was not even on his mind. It was forgotten, set aside as an irrelevant factor in the equation because the joy that was set before him was so immense that that suffering, that shame, meant nothing to him. Crucifixion was designed to produce maximum humiliation and shame. But that didn't stop Jesus from obeying the Father because it was totally eclipsed by unbounded, undeterred, and unwavering joy of what was on the other side. Christian, you and I, we are each called to carry a cross. We are called to do it in the exact same way that he did it, with joy. When I think of endurance... It was mentioned earlier with running by Marco. Look, I, I've tried to run lately. As you might notice, I'm a little out of shape. I get very little into my run and realize I don't like this. I don't want to do this. I feel like stopping. I, I, I'm trying to lay aside the weight, and it's not working right now. And as I'm running, I'm realizing that I have no joy in this. The only joy I'm going to receive is tomorrow morning when I stand on the scale. There is joy set before us that produces in us joy right now. Just like Jesus could have joy as he carried that cross up to Calvary, we can have joy as we pick up our cross every day. We have joy in the promises of God. They cause us to face any hurdle or danger or difficulty or depression, and we can do that because Scripture graciously commands us to delight ourselves in the Lord, and that delight in Him gives us the strength to carry forward. The light and momentary affliction that we encounter is totally overshadowed by the weight of glory on the other side of our obedience. So, brothers and sisters, look to Christ and see that He has carried His cross and now, because of that, you can carry yours. So let us safely carry on as we trek through this race. As you feel tired, as you feel exhausted, when you don't think you can endure, you can. This is not a self-help sermon. You can't. 
by yourself. But you can because Christ carries us on. I don't know what cross you carry. I don't know what exactly is making your race difficult to endure. But in those moments when you feel like quitting or where you struggle to fight sin or where you feel prone to wander, look to Jesus who endured on your behalf. See his joy. Set your heart on that cross and call out to the one who hung there for you and plead with him, give me your joy so that I can carry my cross too, just like you. Let me close these, uh, my words here with words from Jesus from John 15 verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be full. Praise God. So I want to uh, wrap up our time uh, together this morning with um, this last part of verse 2. That says, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're going to start at the end of the passage and work our way to the beginning. First, the throne of God. On October 25th, 2019, Kanye West, believe it or not, released a Christian album. I would guess that most of you probably haven't heard that album. Have, have you heard that album? Anybody? Okay, you, okay. I see some people, some hands. Okay, all right. Now, many of you haven't, but I am 100% sure that uh, you'll agree with Kanye on his choice for the album title. And that title was Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Isaiah prophesied that the government will be upon his, Jesus' shoulder. The wise men knew this, and it led them to ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? John records Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world. John says it again in Revelation that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah knew. The wise men knew. John knew. Kanye knows. Do you know that Jesus is the king of kings? Do you know that power and might beam from his very essence and that his words are not mere suggestions but edicts? from the mind of a sovereign ruler. Do you know that? Jesus rules with power and authority. And this power and authority is why he is seated at the right hand of God, which is my second point. Now we see this language of the right hand of God all throughout the Old Testament. It is meant to point to God's power and skill. By saying that Jesus is at the right hand of God uh, is to say that he embodies these qualities within himself. In the Psalms, you see this over and over. And I'm going to need your help, okay? So I'm going to, when I point to you, I want you to say right hand. You got me? Okay, so here we go. At your right hand. are pleasures forevermore. 
your supported me. The saving might of his your is filled with righteousness. Now, you might as well say, now this time you're going to say Jesus, okay? In there are pleasures forevermore. Supported me. The saving might of is filled with righteousness. Jesus is himself the power and authority of God. He is rightfully positioned at the right hand of God. Thirdly, Jesus is seated. Jesus is seated. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. That's from Hebrews 10, verse 11, just a little before our passage here in chapter 12. As the verse says, the service of the priest was to repeatedly make sacrifices every single day for his sin and the sins of the people. Priest after priest, lambs, bulls, goats, all slaughtered, rivers of blood flowing from the temple, all atoning for sin and appeasing God because that's all it could really do. It was constant over and over, sin on top of sin on top of sin, sacrifice after sacrifice. There was no rest for the priest. And because of that, there, was no, there were no chairs in the temple. Every priest stands daily at his service. But Hebrews 10 continues. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down. One of the most important phrases ever uttered in history was spoken by Jesus on Calvary. The English translation of that phrase is, it is finished. Paid in full. In other words, the work I came to do is now complete. My assignment is done. I became the perfect priest. I became the single perfect sacrifice for all time. It is finished with me. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He is seated because his work on our behalf is done. And lastly, if you're working your way back with me, you'll see there's only two words left, and and is. It's not and. But Jesus is. Jesus is. This one word is so powerful. This means that as we speak, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is alive and reigning right now in the midst of COVID and variants, in the midst of hurricanes, floods, and fires, in the midst of a presidential assassination and earthquake in Haiti, in the midst of an overthrown government in Afghanistan, in the midst of racial issues in the world and in the church. We've lost 
Barbara Reitz, Grant Connor's mother, Joan, Rocky's cousin, Ray, and many others. Every one of you here is most likely dealing with something that causes you to worry daily or that keeps you up at night. In the midst of all of that, Jesus is. He exists. He is real. He is alive. He reigns now. If you know Jesus, be encouraged that he is, that his work of salvation is complete. Remember that you are saved by grace through faith, not of works. Remember the power and might of Jesus and find strength in the King of Kings in your times of trouble. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, know that Jesus is reigning in heaven now, but he walked the earth over 2,000 years ago. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He had all power, but became powerless and joyfully gave his life up on the cross for sinners like me, for a sinner like you. Will you strap on your shoes to run the most important race of your life? Will you cast your burdens on him? Will you come to him today? Let us pray. Father, help us to realize that we don't run this race alone. We run in the strength of the Holy Spirit and with the encouragement of a stadium of heavenly hosts cheering us on to glory. Help us to free ourselves of anything that hinders us from serving you with every part of ourselves because you deserve our all. Holy Spirit, please urge us on, carry us through, lead us in the way we should go, and lift us over the hurdles that life will bring our way. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to daily put his sacrifice on our behalf into perspective. Help us to see our bleeding Savior with nails in his hands and feet and a crown of thorns. But also remind us of his resurrection, his power and authority, his rule and reign right now. I pray for those in this room who don't know this Jesus. Open their eyes to see that yesterday is lost forever. Tomorrow is not promised, but today is the day of salvation. May all that was spoken today bring you glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.